that fresh? I don't even know. I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm not going to ask for coffee. I forgot to get you coffee. Okay. Ask a kid. Good morning. Go over a couple of announcements. Uh, skip down to number five. There will be no evening service tonight. We'll resume our evening service on September 11th. Uh, next Sunday is Communion Sunday, correct? Okay, so there will be no evening service on that as well. And I don't think we have any dinner plans for that day either. Need to get together and maybe schedule a dinner in the near future. What do you guys think? Possible? Okay, we'll get together. Uh, Sunday school program start on Sunday, the 11th of September again. Uh, and if we go down a little further, there will be no class on the first Sunday of every month. On September 18th, students will stay in the adult class that evening. And looking forward to our study of God's Word together. Um, another announcement is uh, most of you have heard by now, Pastor is home with COVID once again. And I don't have all the details, but I will have uh, Jared uh, defer to him to give us an update, if you would. Um, so we, Dan and I were over at Pastor's on Thursday, and uh, he was... He was fine that day, but <coughs> by late Friday night, he texted me and knew he was in trouble. Um, so his, he's not quite at the apex of what this is yet. He's continuing to feel worse. Uh, but his doctors um, have been pretty quick on things. Some of the medications he's on interfere with a lot of the treatment that they have. He's on some pretty awful meds being a transplant patient. He had to stop one of them today, and they have him scheduled for here we go, monoclonal Monoclonal. Those antibodies today at Lapeer Hospital and uh, his doctors called and made that happen very fast. And they're very concerned, so he gets that taken care of. They don't want him off this medication that he's on, rejection meds, that it's, it's very necessary he take that within 12 hours of doses and he's gonna be off of it for this morning and they wanna get it taken care of within that window. Um, so we're praying that that takes care of the issue, if you will. And uh, we're very thankful, though, that he, he's been, has it been two years uh, since, I don't even remember, time is kind of all. But he hasn't, he hasn't, this is his first time. A lot of us have been through COVID a couple times already, but it's 
point in time. And he, thankfully, God's protected him, allowed him to get his strength up and heal completely from the transplant, and now he has it. So we're, we're thanking God, even though we're, we're concerned for his health, that uh, he has only recently contracted this. Dear, he, Wednesday night, he was having trouble breathing, um, and he was going to the doctor the next day, I guess. Yes, that's Thursday. true. Did the doctor check him out and his breathing and everything? Yeah, if I remember correctly, Jolene took him. Yeah. Okay, and uh, she was, she wore a mask for, you know, issues, mm -hmm. not only that, but she also came in contact with somebody. I mean, I think it's on a resurgence again, and they're just not talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, they did. I think they tested him and he tested negative. Mm -hmm. Because, in fact, I know that that happened. But on, uh, was it last night? Mm -hmm. Dan went over and, and made him take a couple of them and they all came back positive. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was undetectable on Thursday, but it was certainly detectable by Saturday night. Yeah, they say this is usually two days uh, incubation, you know, was she thinks maybe Sunday, and she was really upset because she thought maybe she was mm -hmm. passing it to other people or whatever, and she doesn't know where she got it, but by Tuesday she was feeling, you know, starting to feel. So she has that now? Yeah, she has COVID. So does Lucas. Also, to add to that, <clears throat> Pastor has also lamented the fact that he's been going through a little bit of weight gain in the last couple of months. And I think that uh, will probably exacerbate the condition that he has now. So uh, I know he's, he's talked to me about uh, ways of, of trying to drop some weight. And uh, I think we need to get through this, this issue of uh, the COVID before we consider anything else at this point. So at any rate, uh, he merits all of our prayers. And uh, whoever prays this morning, I would ask that you bring that up as a special prayer. Okay. Any other uh, comments, questions, or additions to the thing? Dale? You, you have a look on your face like you want to tell me something. How did the furnace go? Oh, the furnace went well. And uh, we got it for the reasonable price. You know, it's 4400 That's what, what the price was. <laughs> and uh, the old one's out in the back for you to take if you want. I took the fan out and uh, some of the electronic stuff that Kevin said would be good because the other furnace is all nearly identical, and then there's some parts that they won't have to buy if they do go, go bad. Then the other, I got another thing that, well, you kind of touched on that uh, we need to have like a dinner, but we could have a, uh, maybe one of these Sunday nights, like some of that brush on fire, have a bonfire and a hot dog cookout or something, too. It's definitely something to consider and uh, make it. Uh, Make it youth-oriented, perhaps. Get the kids involved. Let them do all the heavy lifting and dragging the brush. We're learning in our old age, aren't we? Okay. Uh, on the on the, the furnace, uh, the resident bookkeeper has asked me if that's been paid for already. Okay. You gave her the bill. Okay. All righty. Well, we'll we'll talk with her later. Okay. Anything else? Being nothing else, then our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, 
verses 8 through 12, and you'll find that in your pew Bible on page 1850. Would you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Doug, would you kindly lead us? Our Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you for who and what you are. And that you bestow rich blessings on us. So numerous that we can't count. We think of our pastor, of course, this morning. Thank <laughs> you. 
take your red hymnal and turn to number 457, 457 in the red. Same question. Anyone have every week? Anyone have a favorite hymn? Do you have a favorite hymn, George? Oh, Hannah, the birthday girl. Yes, ma'am. It is well. Four ninety-three in the red. Is that right? Oh, brown four ninety-three. Brown, maybe ish. Why? It was in your head this morning. Good song to be in your head. 493 in the brown. <coughs>
our scripture reading for this morning will be taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, and that'll be page 1830 in your pew Bible. And when you come to that, please stand with us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Can we take your red hymnal again and turn to number 693, 693.
Good morning. An eventful couple days for us. The news coming so so quickly. Thank you for your prayers. Um, we were supposed to this evening kind of bring a wrap to the the series that we were doing in there uh, about our eyes, and we did a lot of talking about um, things. And so, although we have to forego tonight, um, well, I'm still planning on delivering that lesson, but this might be a, a substitute at least to help us consider the things that we were studying in that class, being content. Um, and it's something, if you've ever talked to me about how I come up with the subjects for what I speak about, guess who I'm preaching to first? Me. So you hear an awful lot of the personal life of the speaker when I'm up here. And I don't know if it, it tells too much, maybe. I don't know. But I think there's a great deal of honesty when you, when you, I think my dad also preaches the same way. So being content with the things that we have, and maybe our focus has been in the wrong location. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll, we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for the day that you have given. Uh, they pass by so quickly, and uh, we don't think as much of them. But this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to count our days, to be aware of them as they pass, the time that's happening, and the things that we should and ought to be doing uh, for you in your kingdom and the expansion of it, and for our Savior. Help us not to be dulled by the quick passing of the Lord, but to, to be aware that every moment that we have is precious and on purpose and has design by you. I pray you will help us this morning, Lord, that you'll send your spirit upon us. Without your spirit, we meet in vain. So we ask, Lord, for his blessing and his appearance tonight, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be with our minds that are often cloudy and hazy and uh, concerned with the week's activities to come or the week that just passed. And, Lord, for this moment in time that you would clear our thoughts and our minds and our hearts so we can listen to you speaking through your word. We ask that all is said and done today, Lord, is done to the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Achieving contentment in life can be a very difficult thing. And we have so many areas in which we would like to find contentment. We want to be content in our relationships with others, in our physical lives, as in our homes, cars, and other amenities, and in our spiritual life as well. And although we desire contentment in these areas of our life, we often go about it the wrong way. And granted, there are a lot of major distractions to achieving true contentment. We live in an age of materialism. People's intrinsic value is no longer more important as their net worth. People today live to attain more things. They want bigger and better cars, bigger houses, jet skis, clothing, property, you name it. And our national motto would be more accurate if it was changed from, in God we trust, to he who dies with the most toys wins. And although people realize that they cannot take any of their possessions with them when they die, they strive to live in the moment and enjoy their things until they are separated from them by death. Yet, no matter how many things they acquire, it is never enough. Those who have little 
and those who have a lot both share the same desire. They both desire more. Their desire is never satiated. The desire for things can outweigh the desire for companionship. Many a marriage has been broken or sapped of relationship because one or both of the people have devoted themselves to the acquisition of things instead of the acquisition of their spouse's affections. The appeal of possessions has been used as a substitute for true demonstrations of affections. People appeal to the other person's desire for things as they purchase things to show their love. Indeed, our desire for the material world has gotten extremely out of hand. Even as Christians, we are not immune. Even though we have been enlightened by the scriptures that everything on earth and in heaven is going to be consumed with fervent heat, we have imbibed the world's lust for the material. We figure that the elements are not going to burn while we are alive. and We figure that our purchases of things are well within our rights as beings and God doesn't seem to mind. After all, it is our money. We have a right to do with it as we wish. And we figure that we also don't spend nearly as much money on our things as our neighbors, and so therefore, we are self-justified. We convince ourselves that we really need that thing, and we can list the ways in which it will be useful to us, and even in our ministry to others. Contentment within relationships is scarce nowadays, as people are just a part of the me generation the me generation has become the me generations. Now, not only is one generation considered the selfish one, we are all selfish. And in so our relationships, we are looking out for ourselves and not the other person in our marriages, our familial ties, our businesses, and our social relationships. In addition, when people grow discontent with a particular relationship, the attitude is to get out of it rather than work on correcting the problems. People of the world are looking for their soulmate, and by soulmate, they mean the person who will fill their needs completely. They thought that they would have to be this person who fills other person's needs, never enters their heads. Therefore, they are hardly ever content. Adultery, divorce, and separations are the accepted means of fixing the problem of discontentment in our lives. Problems at work? Quit. Not intimate with your spouse? Have an affair. Or better yet, get a divorce and move on. You are justified if you do so. After all, if you don't look out for your own best interests, who will? Do what's right by you and keep your head up. Our spiritual lives are a mess, too. We are not content in many areas. I am not growing fast enough. Why can't I get over this sin and move on? I'm not being fed what I want here at church. I don't like the messages being preached. Worse yet is when all of these areas of discontentment spiritually combine together. I'm not learning anything. I don't like the pastor, the deacons, the parishioners, or whatever else. And these pews are too uncomfortable to sit in for an hour. But sadly, the church, the people of the church, are no longer concerned about the well-being of the church. They are concerned about themselves. 
we have become a discontented people. And when we are discontent, we are usually in a state of sin. There is no reason for the Christian to be discontent in the areas that we have looked at so far. Brethren, as with all of our life, we are called to a much higher standard than our worldly counterparts. The relevancy of the scriptures will hopefully ring true in your hearts this morning. And let us hear from God as to what a contented Christian is and how we might become one. Let's look first to the idea of materialistic contentment. Old Testament Israel is always a good place to look for object lessons. You will turn in your Bibles to Exodus 16, and we'll start with the first verse. Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. <laughs> there we sat round pots of meat and ate all of the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Well, let's begin with the circumstances behind the complaint. Israel was marching through the desert only two months following their departure from Egypt. It is understandable that the people were hungry. By now, a good portion of the provisions were probably gone. And just a few verses earlier in chapter 15, they grumbled against Moses as they had run out of drinking water. Now realize that the need was indeed real. The people were hungry and thirsty. This was a true need. However, they did not go about resolving the issue correctly. God had provided for them since their exodus from Egypt. He had miraculously provided water for them when they were thirsty. And now they are hungry, and instead of praying and asking Jehovah Jireh, they, for provision, they complain and grumble against the human leaders of Israel, namely Moses and Aaron. Their complaint wasn't just, I haven't had anything to eat for quite a while. Moses, what are we going to do? Instead, they, they said it would have been better for God to exterminate them in Egypt than to be hungry in the desert. I need you to realize the ridiculous nature of their complaint. Let me say this, there is no record in Scripture of this generation of Israelites dying of starvation or, or thirst before or after this event. It was not as if they were dropping from emaciation and people were burying their family members. God Almighty was providing for them. and He had not given any reason for them to doubt his provision. Their complaint was an exaggeration of their discomfort and discontentment. Plain and simple, they were unhappy with their situation, and they were going to let God know about it. Except, they weren't going to take it directly to God. They chose to attack Moses and Aaron, his servants. They did not test God. They, sorry, they did, test God, did not test God just this one time. Sorry. And as you know, they continually tested God over several occasions, and each time, God provided. Ultimately, though, their rejection of God as provider brought their deaths. 
God rejected that generation of Israelites for their unbelief. Each of them fell in the desert as a result of God's curse on them, not of starvation or dehydration. And Solomon also took a decidedly different approach to materialism. In Israel's case, the object of desire was food, a necessity, a commodity of life. In Solomon's case, it was things. His experience with materialism is very similar to what's going on today. If you want to, turn to Ecclesiastes 2, the first 10 verses there, and we'll hear from him. While we do, see if the picture that's painted here reminds you of people you know today. Starting in verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves to flourishing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves who had other slaves who were born in my house. And I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all of my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless at chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Wine, women, and song, they're all here. In addition, he collected great amounts of wealth. He built magnificent palaces with gardens and acquired slaves and servants to cater to his every whim. Few, if any of us, will ever have the resources available to us as did Solomon. Imagine buying everything and anything you have ever wanted. Building that summer home up north and a winter home in one of the southern states. Lavishly furnishing the, them with furniture and an immaculate lawn and garden. Purchasing that car you've always wanted. Retiring from work so that you could just enjoy all of your possessions. And by the world's standards, Solomon had it made. He, he denied himself. Nothing, the scriptures say. Nothing. And yet, after all he had acquired and had time to enjoy, his conclusion is verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless at chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Beyond this conclusion of his denying himself nothing, Solomon did come to one other important conclusion. In verse 13 of chapter 12, it says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
Now, I would like to say that we Christians listen intently to the Holy Spirit regarding possessions. I would like to say that we take Israel's example for what it is and trust God for the necessities of life. But we don't. I would like to say that we follow Solomon's example for us and take the lesson at face value and trust God that he is indeed the only source of contentment. But we don't. Instead of taking God's word concerning Solomon's life and his conclusion of the matter, we ashamedly would like to find out for ourselves what it would be like to be in Solomon's shoes. The human heart desires to have its lusts fulfilled. Give me everything, and then let me compare the value to what I have now. I know I will be happier with everything. Now, if we believe God to be true, and that he never changes, then what was true in Solomon's day is also true today. Those of you chasing the American dream and trying to acquire as much as you can, the things you pursue will not satisfy. And you may have a period of time when you are infatuated with whatever you have purchased, but sooner than you would like, the allurement of that particular thing wanes and the desire for the next thing begins to take over. What is the core issue here? Plain and simply, it's idolatry. Am I really suggesting that if we buy things to make us happy, we are being idolatrous? What I am saying is that we must be very careful in what we purchase and, more importantly, where we place our affections. If you find yourself constantly wanting material possessions, then you are trying to fill the void in your life designed by God, for God, with something that is not God. This is idolatry. If the chief and primary desire of your heart is anything but God, it is idolatry. Now you may give lip service to the fact that you still honor and hold God in the highest esteem and reverence, but how will the examination of your life stack up with your statement? Will we find that you have purchased whatever your heart has desired? Let's be practical for a moment. Men, are you eyeing that new smartphone, laptop, power tool, or car that has the new feature, more capabilities, etc., than the one that you currently have that works just fine? Why? Is it just because you want it? If so, red warning flags should arise. Ladies, what about that piece of jewelry, that dress, pair of shoes, or whatever you keep buying on Amazon? They're so pretty and different than anything else you have in your collection, and you'd really like to have it. Why? What tangible benefit does any of these things add to your life that you don't already have? Are they fulfilling a need? Worse yet, here is the move from mere desire to obsession. When we obsess over the purchasing of an object, as in dreaming of it and how we may acquire it, we become the high priest of that particular idol. We may even proselytize others in worship of this thing. God has indeed blessed our nation, brethren. Food and water are in abundance. Jobs are available. Money from the jobs we have provide for our families. In addition, we have many objects available to us that make our lives easier or more enjoyable. But with greater blessing comes much greater responsibility. We have been told from this pulpit, as well as many other sources, that God has said all things on this earth are His. There are no exceptions. Psalm 50, verse 10 
Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. The world is mine, and all that is in it. To functionally understand these verses, you must understand that your house is not your house. It is God's and everything in it. Your car is not your car. It is God's and your family, not your family. It is God's. Your spouse is not your spouse. He or she is God's. And you are not your own. You belong to God. It has been said that everything that you have is on loan to you from God. However, this is not entirely accurate. When you secure a loan from a bank, they do not care too much what you purchase with that money they lent to you. The bank only really cares that you pay them back in a timely manner with interest. And we are stewards in the house of God. We manage his assets. We will be held accountable for what we have or haven't done with God's property. And this concept is really hard for us to understand. Our jobs are not directly the result of our training or innate abilities. The pay we receive is not our just desserts for a job completed and well done. Our ability to work comes from God. That does not mean that God has just blessed us so that we can work. It means God has equipped us to do what he desires for us to do in his service. Your employment in whatever company you are in is not just about you or your family. God has you there and working and receiving money for a reason. And that reason is and forever will be his glory. The funds you bring home should be viewed as more blessings from God, not your own personal things to do with as you please. Quite frankly, people may view their tithe as the small portion that is truly God's and the rest as their own. And brethren, this is wrong. All of it is God's. And the small amount designated as tithe is designed to provide for the church and its needs. And too often, people of the church misuse the money they receive from God. Some have the blessing from God to help the church or missionary monetarily and yet use the funds to finance some other thing that gratifies their own selfish desires. Some withhold funds from the church because they are unhappy with what is happening in the church. And this is just plain sinful. Will you withhold from God what is rightfully his so you can have your way? God did not bless you with money to propagate your sin. God has blessed you with money as God has blessed others with different gifts, and he has done so for the purpose of edifying his church. Both of these misuses stem from a discontented heart. We exist in our present lives in the very place that God has dest destined us to be for this time. The call for the Christian is to be content with where we are and what we have. Why? If we truly believe that God is completely in control of all things and that he owns all, then we must also believe that he has a particular place in our lives for a purpose. We have what we have because God has given all things to us. To be discontent is to not trust God 
and his plan for our lives. And worse yet, being discontent, uh, being discontent voices our opinion that we could run our lives in a better fashion or even that we deserve more than our current situation in life. You know, God has pr promised to provide for our needs, nothing more. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or even what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Food, water, and clothing are what God has promised. And if we have anything beyond these three necessities, and all of us do, it should be considered a blessing from God. And as such, let us remember that it, no matter what it is, is still to be used in the service of the king, as it is still his. Paul charged Timothy in our scripture for meditation this morning. Let's look at that again, 1 Timothy 6. Starting in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Are you one of the people, of some people that Paul refers to in this text? If so, ruin and destruction await. Paul's charge to Timothy is the same as to us as well. Instead of pursuing the passing things of this world, pursue God and his righteousness. Beyond our physical contentment, brethren, there is a greater area of our lives that demands attention, and that is our spiritual lives. Our spiritual contentment should be of great concern to us as Christians. 
And first of all, let me say this is one area of our lives in which a little discontentment may be of service. Consider David and his constant pleas to God in Psalm 119. I'm just going to read a few verses. Psalm 19, verse 40. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Verse 26. I recounted my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Verse 27. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts, then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. In a very real sense, David is discontent with his spiritual life. David is longing to know God, and by his own admission, he has to repent of his actions. He desires to be free from his sin and sorrow. Grief over our sin and the effects of our sin is a good reason to be discontent. Truly, God is not content or pleased when we sin. It is his desire that we be made perfect. If we are not in tune with God's thinking on our sin, contentment may set in. Never are we to be content with sin. Consider the contentment of the Corinthian church over the toleration of a wayward brother. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Spiritual apathy or contentment had taken over the Corinthian church, and they were content to live with this man's disobedience. Sin was openly tolerated. This contentment is completely unacceptable in the church and in the life of the believer. A second spiritual contentment is also dangerous to the Christian. A Christian can fall into a spiritual slumber. That is, they are content with where they are in the progression of the faith, and then they just stop. They stop learning, they stop growing, and they stop maturing. And you've met many, I'm sure, in your lives. Some stop earlier in their spiritual life and are perpetual baby Christians. In Hebrews 5.11 the writer urges his audience to grow up. Listen attentively to what the author considers the baby food of the faith. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance that acts to, that, from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Well, how complete is your knowledge of repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, and eternal judgment? Not having a functional understanding of these topics is a sign that you are not mature. Beyond that, if you claim knowledge of these things, consider that true understanding involves putting your knowledge to work. If you are not practicing and putting your knowledge to work, you are still an infant in the faith. If this is you, how long have you been at this point? Days? Weeks? Months? years, decades. I will say this also, if you do practice these things and are somehow content with only knowing these rudimentary things of the faith, and you believe that the deeper things are either too difficult or too time-consuming for you, you are also an immature Christian. Human understanding does have its limitations. If you are relying on the fact that you are of average intelligence and cannot comprehend the deeper truths of God, let me encourage you to re-examine the situation. Who was it that explained the scriptures to the great theologians of the past and present? Was it not the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit different in power in one person over another? Does not the Holy Spirit claim a residence in you as well as the mighty theologians? Who is it that makes the mighty theologian mighty? Brethren, the Holy Spirit is able to make the poor in spirit rich and enlightened and, and a mind illuminated with unfathomable knowledge. What is it that differentiates the theologian from the layperson? Are they not both wretched, wretched sinners who bring nothing to God except their hideously and wicked, despicable selves? Oftentimes, the only difference is the redeemed sinner's dedication to the Word of God. It is the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to work in the life of the believer. Should we stay away from the difficult things of Scripture, how will we ever learn of them? We need to stop relying on our innate capabilities or lack thereof and rely on Christ and his spirit to bring about maturity in the faith. Christ warns his people of becoming lethargic or stagnant in their faith. In Revelation 3, the first three verses to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Brethren, this church was asleep in the faith. God calls us to maturity. And that is why Christ said that their deeds were not complete. Our deeds are not going to be pronounced complete by Christ unless we are about the constant maturing of our faith. 
So when do we reach complete maturity? Listen to the great apostle Paul concerning this issue in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. It is fair to say that the Apostle Paul never reached complete maturity while on this earth. Consider that. Paul, instructed personally by Christ, endowed with miraculous power from God, the chief planter of churches in his day, and the writer of many epistles in our Bible, was continuing in the maturity of the faith until his death. Are we following in his example? How long have we tasted the dulling waters of indifference? How long have we paused in our journey of faith at the oasis of lethargy? Arise, shake off the effects of apathy. Continue the race to which you were called. Difficult as it may seem, the reward for completing the race is great beyond imagination. Let us make up for lost time. What are we then to learn from the study of contentment this morning? The principles are simple yet easily distorted. And first, we must learn to be content with what we have physically in our lives. We live in the most blessed nation on earth. We live in the land of plenty. God has blessed our nation abundantly. Let us not forsake his blessing or take it for granted. And let us not pursue the blessings of God in place of God himself. It is true that all of us have things in our possession that exceed our needs. Does that mean that God loves us more than he loves his people in third world countries who have barely enough on which to subside? Certainly not. We are experiencing God's blessings for a reason. We have been placed in our situation as citizens of the United States as part of God's plan to bring glory to him. As stewards of the king living in his good graces, how then should we live? Should we live to gratify our own desires, or should we live to do our Lord's will? We must monitor our living in the light of God's word. Do we have a problem with materialism? I believe many of us do. But what's the solution to this? Listen to Jesus' reply to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verses 16 and following. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
All of these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? <clears throat> Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, notice the switch of words, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In addition, Christ had this to say to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. Verse 17 reads, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those who are trapped by the sin of materialism must be freed by the abandonment of material things. You may very well have to give some, or even dare I say it, all of your possessions to the poor in order to rededicate your life to Christ. Without the nagging hassle of the next bigger and better thing, you can devote yourself to learning of Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work in your life. The pursuit of Christ is and his righteousness must be the first and foremost thing in the life of the believer. Furthermore, if it is not, you had better check yourself to see if you are really in the faith. How much do you value your relationship with Christ? Is that relationship worth losing all of your worldly possessions to obtain Christ? Let Christ answer this question for us. Matthew 19, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who can, then can be saved? Jesus again looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Now Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. 
Now let me clarify that in and of itself, not having any possessions and being completely destitute does not merit a thing with God. It is the attitude of the heart on which the Lord of glory looks. Idolatrous people need to first remove whatever is in their place of God in their lives and replace that object with Jesus Christ, their true God. The putting off of sin along with the adoption of godly practices is the process of repentance. May God grant us repentance from our materialistic idolatry today. Secondly, as people charged with the responsibility of disseminating the word of God to all tribes and tongues, we are to be experts in the word of God. How can we properly defend our faith if we don't know it? Paul admonished Timothy to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Sadly, some Christians are still baby Christians many years after Christ called them into his kingdom. And some have been believers for a very long time and are yet not able to teach what they know. They have not matured, and they haven't matured because they have not made the effort to do so. If you are not content or willing to learn of Christ now in this life, what do you think eternity with Christ is going to be like? We are not able to take any material possessions with us in death. But what does follow us into glory is what has been learned about our wonderful Lord and Savior. Christ is the path for the race on earth, and he is the prize awarded to all who finish the race in heaven. For those of you outside the family of God, you may have identified with some of the passions described in this message this morning. You may be like the sum of our Christians in the assembly today who are constantly looking for the next big thing. Although both you and the Christian may be looking in the wrong place for fulfillment in life, there is a major difference between the two of you. A wayward or baby Christian, if they are indeed one of the redeemed, will eventually be brought back into repentance, while you, a sinner without Christ, will forever be looking for something to fill that void within and find and never finding anything that truly satiates that desire. Only Jesus Christ can make your life complete. And concerning our need of him and his ability to completely satiate the hunger of the sinner, Christ had this to say in John 6, verse 47 and following. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, this bread is my, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The manna that came down from heaven only addressed the physical need of Israel. Their hearts did not change as evident by their ultimately rejecting God as their Redeemer. They perished in the desert due to their unbelief. The manna of Israel's day was foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ, the living Word who came to feed our souls. As Israel rejected God and died, 
So it is too with the rejection of Jesus Christ. Without the Son of God, your sins are unaccounted for. You will die in your unbelief. It is only Jesus' righteousness that God accepts as payment for your sin. You cannot make atonement on your own. Come to Christ today and experience a level of contentment that you have never experienced before. The void in your life will be made complete as Christ becomes your all in all. You will taste his goodness and it will be a savory dish of which you will never tire. May God grant his mercy today on all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of it, Lord. Thank you for the blessings that you give. Help us to see the things that we have, everything, our bodies, our homes, our families, the things that you grant beyond the need, Lord, as blessings from you, but they still belong to you, and that we should be acting as stewards, not owners. Lord, one day this body is going to die, and our soul is going to have to give an account for the things that you have blessed us with for us to take care of. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be able to stand on that day because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'll help our minds to understand these things, but also, Lord, that it would sink deeply into our hearts that our conduct might change. And that, Lord, also that you would grant us repentance because only repentance comes from you. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Our last hymn this morning is 562, also in the red. 562. Please stand with me when you find number 562.
waited this day, and we pray that our steps are guided by you. That your grace be upon us. That your will in our lives be accomplished. And that, Lord, we look to you in all things. We thank you for this hour of time together. And we pray, Lord, that it would edify us, be good for us, more item of business, brother. 